0: Who was it that said it was either St. Augustine or Jesus? So, (laughs) this is embarrassing. Who can can say the difference? (laughs) Exactly. Is there a difference?
1: So, welcome to the podcast. Today, we have a guest with us, um, Matt and I's uh, sister, uh, Elisa. Elisa Torres Neff. That's right. And uh, she joins us today to discuss uh, a topic that um, uh, she has brought to our attention. We're going to be discussing an article. Uh, And um, she has recommended it to me. I recommended it to um, Matt and Lee. Uh, So, but before we get into that, um, Elisa, welcome. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of who you are?
0: Sure. Yes. So, thank you for having me on the podcast. So, I am number three of the Torres family. Yes. And uh, the nine. <laughs> of the nine. Uh, and currently I am teaching at Belmont Abbey College uh, in their honors department. And so I, I teach a kind of a wide range of subjects, kind of in the spirit of Wendell Berry's article, in fact. Uh, but I studied formally as an undergraduate uh, English literature and theology at Belmont Abbey. And then I went off to University of Dallas, and I'm still in the, the limbo that is ABD, uh, working towards my doctorate uh, in philosophy. So, and the nice thing about UD is that they kind of continue this interdisciplinary sort of spirit that we'll be kind of talking about, particularly with this, with this essay. So even though my doctorate is in philosophy, I was required to take classes in literature and politics as well which was a really nice way to protect against the modern tendency of over-specialization, which Mm -hmm. we'll, again, we'll talk about. And yeah, I I think you put that well, Father, that I brought this to your attention. I did not come up with this, uh, with the ideas in this article. I have no original thoughts. Um, I just introduce students to people smarter than myself like that's, a midwife like a midwife nice. uh, very socratic and, yes yeah. and socrates is not the only midwife i've been thinking of in the past. <laughs> yes as you, you were know. expecting eight, eight months you know yes. so so there's that going on in my life so we're actually too. joined
1: by two guests that's nice. right technically that's right yeah. oh. yes
0: so <laughs> so anyway that i would say that's uh what what else what else can be said
1: no that's a good that's a good um short summary of who you are, where you're at.
0: I feel um, like it's not really in the spirit of Wendell Berry to talk about what I do. I'm, I'm a human well, being, right? right Need right. I say more? Yes, yeah.
1: very good. And um, uh, for those who might be following us closely, we had a previous, one of our previous episodes, we had um, Elisa's husband, Alex, on. For our episode on phenomenology, mm-hmm. and so um, we are completing the family circle. Um, mm. <laughs> yep. We just need to have Sarah here, um, uh, yeah. Lee's wife, That's our, right. our fourth sister. The fourth, we'll see what topics she'll bring up. But anyway, as, she's as, got a lot. She's <laughs> a lot. Domestic disputes. <laughs> Dang. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so getting into our topic, um, as I said, um, Elisa uh, brought this uh, um, article to my attention. Um, a few weeks ago, um, I'm a chaplain at a, um, a high school mm-hmm. uh, in Charlotte, and uh, I wanted to give my staff some summer reading. And in thinking about what to give them to read, um, I had this conversation with Elisa and Alex, and she said, why not this article by Wendell Berry, The Loss of the University. Uh, and as I was reading it, um, I didn't make a decision to give, give it to my staff until I read most of it at least and um i think it's extremely pertinent to not just the university but education in general and so i'm really happy that my staff is reading it Um, i hope to have a good conversation with them uh, at the start of the semester uh but i think it's um again it's not just pertinent to um just the idea of a university but education in general and especially as it stands today i think as Wendell Berry notes, I forget when this was written, um, but...
0: 2009.
1: 2009, okay, okay. Um, so it's it's aging like fine wine, his ideas, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, one of the problems that he identifies early on is that there's an over-specialization in the university where people go to school to learn how to do a job, and then they do that job. And right now I think we're up against this problem that... Well, why do I have to pay the university so much money and learn to do, do this job when I can learn how to do that job via YouTube, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, just look up like how to do the X, Y, or Z uh, when so much information is available to us for free? The question of education is um, really important, and I think if we're if we're if it's left unchecked, we're going down a path where um, ed- 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 classical education could be obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, that's, yeah, setting up the stage <laughs> for just our discussion and how important this idea is. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses the term university, but I think it can be applied generally to education in general. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the core problem that spurs him to, for this whole article is over specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, um, let's just dig in. Yeah. So what are you guys, um, what stood out to you? How how, um, how did you find uh, his ideas?
0: Well, one one thing, just to kind of put what you you said in another way, career training, right? The university yeah. has has been reduced to a kind of career training, or even a trade school, so that even those disciplines that should be about the human things, such as the humanities, are selling themselves short. The way they pitch their particular discipline to different students is look at all the jobs you can get with learning how to be an English major or something to that effect. And so there's a kind of a problem of language uh, just in the university's own understanding of itself. So it's not as if the universities are, you know, this kind of – these. Pure bastions of wisdom that understand what they're doing, who what they're about. Mm-hmm. They've also kind of lost their own sense of who they are. Yeah. It's not just the students coming to them, mm-hmm. it's not just you know forces on the outside influencing that the universities have kind of lost that sense. And yeah. you see this in many many different ways. Maybe one clear example is the lack of a core curriculum that. Many universities today they they don't believe that there's any use in a kind of common language, a common shared experience, and so it becomes this kind of build a bear your own education. You know, right. you, you kind of just go there. Uh, there's lots of options. The students kind of pick and choose what they want, as if they're a customer. Uh, the university has no, well, I mean, how should I say, it? magnanimity. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't believe in itself anymore. It Doesn't yeah. believe that it can actually offer students an education. Uh, and they, they presume that students know what they want before they come in, and they can just kind of pick their way through. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very deep-seated problem. And in many ways, various universities are not even aware of it yeah. entirely. So,
1: Right. And that's – um, that yeah, and uh, wonderberry the way he puts it is that um, the humanities uh, oftentimes are embarrassed about what they teach, mm-hmm. um, which is really um, – that's a good way to put it. When you don't even know what you're teaching, then how can you even convince someone that what you're teaching is valuable? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, it is really an internal crisis. Um, that, like you said, it's not just outside forces, but like what is the point of education in general?
2: I remember uh, going to when I was uh, going to the state school here in North Carolina. Um, orientation. I think the the president was giving a a talk to all the, st- the new students, and he was talking about how. It's like you've heard that people like we want people to be well rounded, but we don't want that. We want you to be spiky, like we want you to we want <laughs> okay. you to be pointed. I was like Bowser. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like we want you to be pointed and and very particularized in your uh, field. in your field yeah. to have a lot of knowledge on one particular thing and like really emphasizing that that was the important thing, mm. um, and kind of just dismissed. It's like well, if you become well rounded, then you're just average all around. You're not like excellent at something. It's like I. I just think that's a misframing, mm. Like, it's the wrong way to think about it. But yeah, so to and your the, point, it's like well, they, they lack that common communication. It's like, what is this university about? Right. It's like, oh, I don't know. It's like just, it's pointy depending on what you want to do.
0: Right. But uh, that does bring up, I mean, we should probably talk about what, what on earth is specialization and is there ever a place for it? Because yeah. mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Aquinas has a treatise on kingship where he's basically making an argument for man's social nature and he does that first by positing and reminding his readers of man's rational nature. So he kind of says, you know, that all all men desire to know begins with that premise and he says, but because it's impossible for a single man to come to a knowledge of all things, it is necessary that he live in community so that one might study medicine, the other might study law, mm-hmm. and that they may come together and form a kind of body of, of and knowledge of the whole. Mm-hmm. So it, it is impossible, truly, <laughs> uh, quite literally to to know everything, right to study every single subject. And so that's why and this in many ways this article is is offensive <laughs> in, in that by saying that there has to be some general knowledge, you're already saying there's a hierarchy of disciplines, that there are mm. some that everyone, Every person should know some of a certain kind of disciplines, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and others aren't as important. And that's not mm-hmm. something that's really welcomed in, at universities. Right. Right? Everyone wants their particular discipline to be represented in the core. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not willing to sacrifice their idiosyncrasies for what they know to be the good of each individual student. Right. They, w- they want their communication class to be on there. Mm-hmm. They want their journalism class to be on there. You know, they want all the options rather than realizing, you know what, there's actually only about four to six disciplines <laughs> that mm-hmm. uh, are really necessary for general knowledge. And then you can step back and, and then go in to mm-hmm. specialize right? Right. And, and serve your community in that way. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's um that's the idea behind like liberal arts and servile arts where the liberal arts were you know like you said it is kind of offensive to like um list these disciplines in a hierarchy um traditionally i believe the liberal arts were for the free people who uh could actually spend time musing about higher things where the servile arts is like well you 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 know your life is tied to a particular lifestyle and you have to learn how to use tools and you know serve mm-hmm. uh, in a sense, um, but that does create a interesting hierarchy, and it I think it implies a um, it implies the reality of truth that there are some things more important important than others, um, and I think that that's what the university is really struggling with, education in general is struggling with an idea of um, relativism versus truth, um, because as soon as you um, dismantle this idea that, like, oh yeah, we should represent all disciplines in our curriculum. Um, then you're saying that, okay, so there's something that we're getting at, and I think it points to the universality of human nature, and that's something that Wendell Berry points to a lot. Points to a lot. I think he would say that ultimately, good education um, helps you to become a better person. Right, but but that again that implies like a
2: a vision of a person um, mm-hmm. that is objective. Right. And, yeah, I'm reminded true. of of Charlotte Mason's work and how much emphasis she puts on just like what is a human person what is a child what is your relationship to them as a parent like you like you have such a foundation on that before you even get to like education yeah the concept it's like first we have to understand what these people are and who they're going to be and how would we make them that person yeah or how do we how do we uh encourage them to become that person yeah that's that seems fundamental yeah
3: yeah there's some people that will go to college and they'll leave and then they'll reflect back on their time in college and say, like, I don't really know what I learned. I can't really tell you much about uh, a particular topic. They studied psychology or history or something. You know, they, they w- kind of walk away and say, I don't really remember what I learned in those topics. But it's, it's um, more, I'd say maybe more fundamentally, uh, college provides some sort of formation of the individual. Like hopefully, like even if you left and you said, I can't quite remember everything I was taught. That's not necessarily the like the most important thing. Is maybe that I mean, hopefully, <laughs> you know, you, you learn something. But maybe it's just that you are now formed as an individual who will continue to be curious mm-hmm. and continue to learn outside of of college. It's like a, a trying to form certain um, habits that are necessary to become an individual that is curious about life, that wonders at life, that wants to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. Maybe more than anything. But I. But th- this goes back to kind of both of your points about – but that implies some sort of uh, anthropology about mm. what a, a person is because I don't think universities now are interested in forming individuals or this idea of education of the soul. It's, you know, you need this so you can get a good job. Right, yeah. Which has nothing to do with mm-hmm. a lifelong formation process mm-hmm. or giving the necessary habits.
2: Yep.
0: Even if – it's it's interesting though. He's, Wendell Berry says uh, – he says, teachers, moreover, are not providing career preparation so much as they are preparing young people for life. This statement is not the result of educational doctrine. It is simply the fact of the matter. So even when teachers think that they are engaging the student in career preparation, I think Wendell Berry is saying, no, you're, as soon as you're in, thrown, throwing these students in the realm of ideas and conversations at this kind of pivotal moment of their life— you're preparing them for the future. And it'd be great if everyone who graduated from a university can have that wonder and curiosity perpetuate in their life. uh, But that's not always the case. And in many ways, that's, that's kind of the problem. And you hear this in a lot of conservative circles where it's no philosophy is better than bad philosophy you know just mm. why why even send our our young people to school because they kind of actually realize that even if they're promising career preparation no this is deeply formative mm-hmm. of of the next generations intellect right. and and thoughts and beliefs uh and so better better just to send them to a trade school and not indoctrinate them right, in right. in bad philosophy right
2: right because there's so many things yeah. you're implying at a to a uh, a student at that age at a pivotal moment where they're asking questions um, and they're kind of unavoidable as they come into their own person. If you stick them in a school for four years and have them receive information without the context, then they're going to assume that life is just this. You know, so right. Like even if it's like we're we're not indoctrinating you with our philosophy and this that and the third. We're just teaching you math and science. You're in, like implicitly saying that these things have no use. Philosophy has no use. Um, even if you're not saying it explicitly, and so like if they don't have that introduced to them as a concept or something to reckon with, then they won't learn that that becomes a tool for them to like live on in their adulthood. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. that's the the kind of fact and value distinction so so much of the the disciplines are taught in this kind of factual way, just a kind of presentation of facts uh the exams are all again, factual you know, kind of multiple choice, <laughs> you know, there, there is no real engagement in, in the sort of deeper philosophical underpinnings of, of what we're doing here. And, and so you can't just, even even something like mathematics, which is probably one of the more factual <laughs> of, of the sciences, right? Mm-hmm. Even that, there are certain uh, philosophies about this, the structure of the universe and uh, objective reality that are presupposed, yeah. you know, and so it's it's not possible to mm-hmm. have a purely factual Kind of learning experience right uh, there are always these values that are being implied right
2: so so to your point about how this seems like it applies to more than just the university because I've this is I've been in reading this this was the kind of the question in the back of my mind of this kind of um tension between having this understanding of education but also realizing that you only have so much time like you said you can't learn all the things is a mathematician supposed to like oh and by the way Aristotle this and Socrates you know, like that's not possible. Like, so how how does this actually play out in somebody who is interested in, uh, say, like a science or to become a doctor? Like, they have to learn how to perform surgeries, and it takes ten years. Like, are they going to spend their time st- also studying literature? Yeah. Like, how does that look in a curriculum? Well, doesn't
1: yeah? Doesn't Wendelbary say something like um, that? Not everybody needs to be educated in a scholastic setting. And he says something like, he says something along the lines of failure in school does not equal failure in the world. Mm. And so if you're not fit, you know, to go to school, that doesn't mean that you can't still be a well-rounded person or even a wise person. Um, He says something, I'm going to quote him here. He says, my own life has happened to acquaint me with several people who did not attend high school, but who have been more knowledgeable in their field and who have had better things to say about matters of general importance than most of the doctors of philosophy i've known um so wisdom essentially can be found in many places right uh and so you know the doctor who is a you know a surgeon who goes to school for 10 years and it doesn't um you know study um these classical disciplines um doesn't that doesn't mean that he's not educated or he can't aspire to you know like knowledge of a higher uh, a higher sense of knowledge mm-hmm. um And so that's something I think we also
2: have to be comfortable with as well. Um, Right. So I guess it would be more like kind of differentiating, like, what is the role of undergraduate university? And like, this is where we create a foundation. And then you go off and do your thing. Yeah. Like, it's fine. We're not, you're not going to take all of that with you when you study how to split brains apart. Yeah. But uh, it's like, what, what is the point of this thing? Like, what is the university, as a four-year undergraduate program, what is this trying to do, like, to to Lee's point? Like, we're trying to awaken something in you. Maybe that's the goal, regardless of where you go. And that's it. Right, right.
3: Yeah, I I don't know if it's a problem of just the amount of uh, time in school and time that it takes to become, like, quote-unquote, educated. Mm. Because before, when you, perhaps perhaps years ago, you would graduate a four-year degree, and that was, you know, that that got you in a lot of doors. But now you need a masters or you need a PhD. So I wonder if the shifting the shifting role of the undergrad program is more of this entry level here's what you need to become a critical thinker or a critical evaluator of information mm-hmm. and if you want to go on to specialize that's something that you're going to have to do not in this program. Right. I mean that that's how I understand masters and PhD level programs mm-hmm. is you know undergrad is really just as I said, I think last week mm-hmm. like you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, you just don't have enough time, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it, you have some cal- classes that you need to take to help you move on. But at this point, it you know, you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you, yeah. you mentioned, sorry, dude.
0: I no, you can finish that.
3: Um, you mentioned scholastic, my favorite word, because um, <laughs> there's all, in in this scholastic university. There's already this specialization, though, and mm-hmm. even in a time when it was uh, so unified under. An idea of of kind of Christ as like the center of all things, um, you still had to have uh, a basic understanding of logic, rhetoric, mm-hmm. grammar, math, geometry. Mm-hmm. You, you still had to take all these classes and philosophy, but then you could go on in, into usually medicine, law, or theology. But they still had this this core, like you said. I think at least that early like this unifying principle or, or or a core curriculum mm-hmm. is what you said like you still have to have that in order you can't possibly understand any of these other topics until you understand these and i, I right. wonder if that's maybe the tension you're getting at father yeah. kind of there's some there's something that you have to grasp before you can go on
0: right yeah. and and it would be it would be uh how should i say this deceptive <laughs> for medicine to to pretend that it's that there are not philosophical implications in in their own field, right? I mean, there's even at Belmont Abbey, the nurses are required to take an ethics class, mm-hmm. and more and more, right. this is going to be the case. And these these doctors are not just. I mean, this kind of goes to back to uh, a, a distinction that Wendell Berry makes between what he says um, knowledge of what one is doing versus uh, knowledge of the thing made or something to that effect right mm-hmm. we don't want our surgeons just knowing the brain right yeah. we and this is a problem in medicine i mean you have this over specialization problem in medicine where you end up having to go to seven different doctors just to find out what's wrong with you because no one knows the whole story they don't know the end right they don't have mm-hmm. a knowledge of the thing made right the human person mm-hmm. uh and, and that, that has a lot of problems, right, um, because these different specialized doctors are not actually talking to each other or informing each other. Uh, and they're also not thinking about the deeper questions, um, the deeper moral questions, you know, about, okay, just because we can perform the surgery doesn't mean we should always, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of um, who yeah. was it that said it was either St. Augustine or Jesus, so <laughs> this is embarrassing. Who can, but, who can,
3: who can say the difference? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is there a difference?
0: Um, something to the effect that the the Decalogue is something that we we didn't actually need; that it was already written on our hearts, but we just needed to be reminded of it because of our fallen nature. Uh, the the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. right? And so, right. So man didn't need you know, got to pop out of the sky and be like, right. you know, murder is wrong. You know, it's, it's obvious that this was true, in but yeah. Mm-hmm. Natural you know, law. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Uh, but we but we did need the constant reminder, right? Mm-hmm. That's how fallen we were, right? I kind of think of the great books as that, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it, that we don't, you know, if if we lived in a perfect world where we weren't fallen and we didn't have this kind of uh, chronic amnesia, uh, we, we could basically go on our merry way farming and (laughs) just living off the land and being, you know, social, the Mm -hmm. social animals that we are Mm -hmm. uh, in a city, right? But we're constantly forgetting who we are, our roots, what is human nature, what is written on our hearts. And that's, I think, really the purpose of the great books. You know, the the, great books kind of education is a reminder. It's a constant reminder of the most human things in us that we should never have forgotten, but we constantly do. Mm-hmm. And so kind of going back to that question about the, the, the doctor, right, whose education takes 10 years, uh, at some point in his human formation, he has to encounter those deeper human questions. Whether that happens in high school, maybe it, maybe he does go to a liberal arts education and then further specializes, or I'm sorry, a, a, a college, mm-hmm. and then further specializes, at some point it should happen. And I think the the emphasis we're seeing now with this kind of new new surge that we' are, we're having with you know the great book conversations and liberal arts education um there is a kind of prolonged adolescence in in human formation now right where just things we're just not we're not where our parents were mm-hmm. <laughs> when when they were our age you know and uh, and and because of that, what should have been addressed you know maybe in uh, elementary school In elementary school yeah. Right Or or in high school Is now Now it's not until They get to college Where they're right. actually Asking these questions And that's kind of a problem Right Right.
2: Well that's what I was ta- Saying hmm. to your point Of like this actually I feel like this bleeds Farther back Than just the university Like it goes back to Like everything prior to that Your whole education It's like you're supposed to Have this You know Entire education From your childhood of a foundation of thinking about these things and seeing the connectedness of things, the, the atmosphere Charlotte Mason would say, and then you get to university and you meet these like intelligent beings that will like <laughs> impart wisdom to you, and you just kind of soak it all in for four years, and then you go specialize. Yeah. But it's like they're kind of speeding that process up. Like, no, no, no. It's all STEM. It's all the, the what gets you a job. You go to school, you learn the job, and then you get the job. And that you know that's.
1: I feel like there's a hidden uh, materialism behind that agenda. Yeah. Um, where you're not able to. It, and and bueno brings this up uh, implicitly at least where you're not able to point to literature and say like this is what I will get out of studying literature right there's something that's like um poetic intuition mm-hmm. about learning from the great books uh and in a world where we're so modernized and uh we like to think materially uh we like to get the bottom number for like what we're doing right um like you know if i spend this much of my education what can i make Right. And like that's how you justify things. Uh not just in education but like anything. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's no wonder that um the university is losing its identity
2: because so much of it is based off of um non-material principles. Right. Uh okay, so yeah, there, there this is, I wanted to bring this up because we we're kind of scapegoating the like doctor and science in trying to think of this problem, but- <laughs> I'm an English major and I'm better than a surgeon. I'm just oh. saying, yeah, I feel like it's, a, it's an easy <laughs> distinction to make when trying to make a point, but I feel like most people fall in the middle where they're like, I work a nine to five um, at a desk job. So like, I know you're telling me that like doctors will have to ask ethical questions, like, mm-hmm. but I don't, I never will. I'm always just filling out an Excel sheet. Um, <laughs> however, I feel like this kind of gets to the point of, um, understanding the human person because the person working a nine to five may not find practical, like a practical use for his liberal arts education in his job, but he is not just a worker at a job. You know what I'm saying? The whole point is that like, you will actually be a better worker when you have a deeper understanding of how the world works so that you're not having like a mental crisis and then like, you know, your job performance declines. You know, that's just an, an example, but it's like, in order for you to thrive as a person, this is going to be essential, and then that makes you a better fill in the blank. Like it's not because in your job you're going to have to confront a philosophical question. Yeah. It's like no, no, you're a whole being, and that affects everything. Yeah, and that's a utilitarian way to look at it. No, I'm not saying
1: it's not yeah, true, sure, um, but that's just one out of the many reasons why. And I think Wendell Barrett, towards the end he kind of mentions like this idea of that like, you know, the 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 worst form of a university is kind of like cogs in a machine. Um, where it's like moving away from uh, a natural vision of human flourishing, um, but yeah, uh, absolutely.
0: What is and that's why I think the humanities do themselves such a disservice when they are saying, "Look at how useful we are."
2: Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm just. You could be a journalist. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, there is a kind of hierarchy there, uh, kind of the way that Aristotle talks about friendships: the the, the pleasant, the useful, and then the good. And the higher, assume the lower, mm-hmm. right? So the the good friend also is a useful friend, yeah. right? He'll probably mm-hmm. pick you up from the airport, mm-hmm. uh, but a useful friend is not always a good friend, right? So there's something like that with the humanities going on that the you know oftentimes and you you see this right um, that. You know, English majors, let's say, who actually are studying literature in the way that Wendell Berry is kind of describing here with a sense of the whole. They're not just taking classes on journalism or how to, you know, marketing or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, They're broader, right? They actually end up doing better in the work field. Mm -hmm. And many employees actually want to hire them because they don't – they're not just trained in one thing, but they actually know how to learn. And they learn yeah. quickly and well. Mm-hmm. And so that is a case of actually because they've pursued this good thing and they've done it well, it ends up being useful. Mm-hmm. But don't, don't you know, start on the useful pitch <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because sure. that's not right. actually yeah. the highest value of mm-hmm. this thing. right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyhow.
1: Yeah. Um, in thinking about how all these disciplines work together, um, I think another problem in – Modern education is that the disciplines are so disconnected from each other. Um, there's so so much specialized jargon. Um, like with you know you 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 think about um, like upper level um, English classes and their terms that they use for studying for lit- literary criticism. Like how does how does how does that department um, mingle with departments of philosophy where they have their own jargon and theology and. Other, you know, sciences, it's just like they're so isolated with their jargon that um, there's no um, unifying principle. Um, and this is, is this the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the etymology of university is, to, is this idea that it's unified many verses, right? So, like, you have many verses. A unified verses. diversity. Yeah. yeah right? absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, like, while you're, um, uh, you know, and this is the old scholastic method to what you alluded to, Lee, earlier, um, while you're studying all these disciplines, you can see how they fit into the whole. And so the more you learn through the various disciplines, the more you're getting at one thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know Wendell Berry doesn't mention this. I think John Henry Newman does in his idea of the university, that if all truth comes from God, then all truth, no matter where it's found, will lead you to that one source, right? And that unifying principle can be seen as God himself. That's a little bit of a Mm top-down understanding of education. Um, But uh, Wendell Berry does use that image of a tree, Yeah, that's Um, very important. Yeah, and so seeing how, like, you can see this unified thing as a tree, but understand that there's many branches Mm -hmm. and how the branches um, are not – they're not isolated from that being, but rather connected. And it's the connectedness that makes the whole thing valuable. Um, And he compares, like, the opposite side of that, um, which would be a negative, and and what modern education tends to be um, is that it's like a bundle of sticks. Mm. It's like that they're not even – Unified in any way, except maybe like
2: artificially, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. you're studying it at one place. That's what Charlotte Mason defines education as: the science of relations. Mm. And so it's how all their, how they all are interconnected. Again, but on the presumption, like you said, that like this is all tied to a one true thing. Um, So again, like there, there seems like there's these um, religious presuppositions around education and and human and humanity before you can even get to like well how do i now impart this to a, to a student mm-hmm.
0: right this this distinction between the the organism versus the mechanism is mm. kind of yeah. what he says and in many ways this is a, a kind of a main uh difference of images that mm. that kind of determines one's philosophy of education here um, I'm reminded of, you brought up the language problem, Father, and uh, Jordan Peterson has that great example that he likes to give about the zebras that are, d- does this ring a bell? Zebras. It's, uh, <laughs> These the biologists years. go out to study zebras on this African savanna, and they, in order to to study these zebras, they're always constantly kind of looking at individual zebras one at a time. And they're, they're constantly losing sight of which zebra <laughs> they are studying because mm-hmm. of the, the stripes actually work to camouflage mm-hmm. the zebras. And, uh, and so they end up, you know, kind of tag tagging individual zebras, you know, splattering paint on mm-hmm. them or whatever it is. Uh, and what ends up happening is that uh, that, Particular zebra that is has been marked out from from the herd uh, ends up being basically eaten Cast by a, a predator, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and this happens continuously. Uh, and so Jordan Peterson kind of uses this analogy, um, at, you know, as a way to describe the the problem of over specialization mm-hmm. and the language problem. Um, so that when you are protected with in your own discipline with your own unique language. Uh, then you are safe from predators. But as soon as you single yourself out and uh, and actually speak in a way that people can see you, mm. uh, you are prone to all sorts of... Criticism. Criticism, or, yeah. yeah. You're vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. right? You're vulnerable. Yeah. And so the over-specialized language protects you in the herd. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you see this happen all the time. And, and I have... Witness this among you know many many academics uh, where they just retreat into their jargon and they're mm. they're afraid actually to speak plainly because they know they don't make mm. sense <laughs> right, <laughs> you know right. and you see this I think this is my this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, but in many uh, analytic philosophy journals, and they kind of start out by defining their terms, and this is something that my my students will know that I I'm of two minds with with this because Mm -hmm. on one hand, there's a way to define your terms that really clarifies and helps the readers understand what you're talking about. But there's another way of defining your terms according to yourself, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. That you are your own dictionary. Mm. And so it's like, well, by faith, I mean X, Y, Z. And then at the end of your essay, you're like, and therefore faith is X, Y, Z. Well, of course right, it is, right. because you've set up the parameters of right. this argument in such a way <laughs> that mm-hmm. it has, to, you know, you've you've defined all of your terms. Right, yeah. Right, you're and not— So you're
1: closed in on yourself. Right. Instead mm-hmm. of actually saying, like, what does the tradition say about these terms? Exactly. Is, right, right. That's so
0: it's—and uh, this, you know, Wendell Berry says this. It's actually—it's a great line. Uh, I don't know if I could find it, but it's some, something to the effect of, you know, the whole point of education— is to learn the proper names of things mm. to learn the proper names of things and that's so important right it's not for you to define your own terms right it's not for you to be a walking dictionary yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know it, your own specialized dictionary it's for you to actually understand the, the larger conversation because the the more you understand what is common the more you can actually communicate yeah. right mm. and that's the point of conversation it's the right. point of being social It's the point of learning from other people is speaking in a way that can be understood right right?
1: and um that that kind of reminded me of the problem with uh socrates and his sophists that they would be so um impressed with their own rhetoric that they're not actually getting to the heart of dialogue Mm -hmm. uh and so when you see acad you know some academics uh just retreating into their own rhetoric it's almost um it's almost like subconsciously they understand that like they have no philosophy that they can defend um or maybe a more insidious um, interpretation could be that um, they're afraid of being wrong and they're afraid of actually like communing with other people to get at something higher than themselves. Um, and so it's a real shame. And I, I see that as a real betrayal of what education should be. Where like you look at someone like Socrates, who in humility says, I don't know anything, I'm asking questions, digging deeper, doesn't use fancy l- language to hide behind, but is like he almost like bears his soul. To say like I need to get to the truth as much as you do, and so let's work together. Um, I think it's almost evil in a sense when academics who should know better um, hide behind like th- their their own um, bastion of language mm. um, to shield themselves from like any critique, or it, it's just it's it's ugly. It's really ugly.
0: Well, and they see themselves as a kind of arbiter of wisdom. Yeah. Know, right. By by using that specialized right. language, and you'll I mean you'll see this all the time in academia where someone's getting their doctorate in philosophy and they'll say, I'm a philosopher. (laughs) And that just drives me up the wall (laughs) because I'm like, no, you're not like that is something that is bestowed upon you (laughs) when you're dead. (laughs) Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of this strange thing, but Mm. it get, it gives uh, the individual kind of sense of power. Mm. Yeah. And, and then we look to the elites, you know, to Mm. answer all of our questions and, and we're not, even learning yeah. anymore, right? There's nothing, there's no transformation from ignorance to knowledge in yeah. our soul when yeah, we exactly. talk to these people. <laughs> you know, it's just this kind of brute, you know, dependence. Yeah. Uh, and so, and and it's, yeah. So mm. for, for both parties involved, it's, it's just not a good situation. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah, there's a, uh, a real increase in that lately in the universities with more, um, these more popular like gender studies, uh, schools of thought and such like that. Um, Douglas Murray uh, details in um, The Madness of Crowds a very, a very funny story where um, he's saying how these, these departments are getting so kind of crazy with their language. And they, it's so much like absurd jargon that no one can actually make sense of it. And so uh, are, their reasoning is that you just don't understand. Like, you, you know, mm-hmm. you're not in my department. You just don't get the language I'm using. So these two professors um, wrote a fake article. Um, and submitted it to one of these journals, and it got by, I think, two or three peer reviews. It got published in this um, in this um, journal entry, or in this uh, I guess book of journals. And it, just to prove the point that I wish I had more details about it because it was very funny, um, that people kind of hide or hide behind this language to feign knowledge, you know, especially mm-hmm. with impressionable undergrads, because these grad, you know, you're, you're whatever eighteen. 19 you show up you're not really sure and you hear this really impressive language and these complicated sentences like you said the analytic philosophers will sometimes use and it's like well you just don't understand and so then it becomes this dependency and i think we're seeing a lot of that i think you're you're very like you're onto something with that about this idea of if you don't understand just trust me yeah, yeah. and uh, like i'll tell you the truth don't this worry is, about that, it yeah. was
2: this um this is not the same story as james Lindsay's james Lindsay's whole thing it, it might be okay because yeah, right,
3: it's a it's a pretty popular story I'm yeah he lays
2: that out with Jordan Peterson and a couple other places too um where he just submitted a bunch of articles to all these academics and they were just they were like this is amazing they won awards but it's just like complete garbage it's like, a fake article yeah, yeah. intentionally yeah. written to be fair. Yeah yeah. yeah yeah
0: and I think were they on the left those who submitted it they were – it wasn't like it was a bunch of conservatives trolling this, leftist journal.
3: As far as I you know, in, it, in Douglas Murray's book, it's, it's two just kind of concerned professors. Right. It's not yeah. like, you know, these right-wing yeah. trolls that are trying to prove a point. It's more of just – we're kind of concerned that, you know, people are getting away with absur- the absurd articles yeah. that no one understands. Right. So we're going to prove yeah. the point. And I think
1: part of the reason why it might have gotten um, – uh, they might have gotten away with it is that um, – People are afraid to question the jargon because it makes them look stupid, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, When you say, like, well, I don't understand what's going on, but everyone else does, Mm -hmm. suddenly you you feel less than, right? Right. (laughs) And I think that that's what what, – in order to be truly educated, um, there has to be a deep sense of humility. Uh, And I think it's very prideful. Uh, It's really – yeah, it's really prideful to um, see – yourself and maybe your department as the end-all be-all like going back to this analogy of um, uh, uh, the disciplines being like branches on a tree um, i think that there is a certain um, uh, understanding of wisdom that you have to have saying like how does my my role in my department and my discipline fit into the whole right what is the what is the bigger picture and um, understanding it as part of a whole, mm-hmm.
2: um, not at the top of something, right. but just part of a whole. But now, like Lisa was saying, that impl- that then implies hierarchy, because they're not all equal. And so yeah, it's like, right, this right, may right, not right, be the yeah. top end-all be-all, like I'm the god of wisdom, but philosophy is, is going to be higher than... X, Y, or Z. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. You do have to rank order these and, and prioritize because we live in a finite world and you have a limited amount of time. So it's like, what are the fundamentals?
1: Well, and that, maybe that goes back to my, like adds to my point in a sense that like, again, like approaching your discipline with um, humility mm-hmm. and saying like, you know, yes, like there are some that are higher than yeah. like, what I'm doing. But that doesn't mean that mine is not important. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you're not part of the tree. Um, but just knowing your place um, yeah. w- within the grand scheme of education.
0: I'm reminded of the... You know this the story. What is it called? That the emperor has no clothes, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah. I read it the other day by Hans Hans Christian Andersen, and it's uh, it's it's worth reading and going back to. It. It's so short, but I was just really uh, kind of blown away with with some of the details that I had kind of forgotten about. Uh, but one of them, I, I feel like I remembered the story as the emperor being deceptive and wanting to trick every you know all mm-hmm. of his subjects. But it starts out with the emperor's own pride. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, because he picks, he selects the, the the most, you know, just the top experts in in the field of, uh, I don't know, the seamstresses yeah, yeah. Of, of of the city, mm-hmm. and um, and asks them to make these fine garments and they are total frauds but they convince him that they've made these garments but uh, only the wise can see them and if you can't see these garments it's you're because you're foolish right. and so the emperor is afraid and he he pretends to see the garments because yeah. you don't want to look Foolish, you know, amidst these experts, right? right? So you just kind of pretend that you see these garments, and he puts them on, and then his subjects don't want to appear foolish either, so they pretend to put the the drapes over mm-hmm. him, and they're carrying this invisible, you know, cloak behind him as he parades through the city, and everyone realizes uh, that they they might be foolish, right? But no one actually wants to say it, mm-hmm. and so they just accept. You know, the, the fraudulent lie that yeah. these seamstresses are, are you know, have convinced the entire city of until one child from the crowd yells, the mm-hmm. emperor has no clothes. Mm-hmm. And it's the child. Yeah. right Until who, Matt
2: Walsh comes up and says, what is a woman?
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's got to take someone being a fool, right? And asking the obvious yeah. Yeah. or pointing out the obvious because we've forgotten the obvious and we shouldn't have. And so yeah. at that point, it's the child's humility that issues this ripple effect. And everyone realizes that they actually are full, yeah. <laughs> um, not because they can't see the, the garments, but because they have been duped by the, uh, the, the, the sparkle of expertise, yeah. right? You know, Which is what, I mean, in many ways, the problem of language comes down to, right? It's the problem of power, um, of manipulation, right? Yeah. Because... Language leads to ideas, and ideas have consequences. To right. use Richard Weaver's turn of phrase. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's really good. I I wanted to turn to, um, this quote he has towards the end of the article, where he um gives an example of someone. So there was a was it a court case where the question on whether or not public schools can um, teach the Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it. I think it was a court case. Yeah, that is interesting. Um yeah. And, oh, my gosh, the, the 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 ruling case, the majority opinion, was so insightful as to, um, like, our, our state of understanding. Um, not only, like, the Bible, but, like, the humanities as well. Um, I'm trying to find that quote. He said that, um, uh, let's see, Judge Jackson Kaiser of the Federal District Court in Bristol mm-hmm. recently ruled that it would be constitutional to teach the Bible to public school students if the course is offered as an elective and taught in an objective manner, with no attempt made to indoctrinate the children as to either the truth or or falsity of the biblical materials, um, and he said that uh, essentially he should like they should approach the Bible as literature. Right. We actually had a um po- uh, an episode on uh, reading the Bible as literature. But uh, we were presupposing that literature holds value and truth. But he was um, – the, the, the judge was saying that it should be treated as literature as in um, – Fake. Fake. <laughs> well, not, not necessarily fake, but like the way that modern schools yeah. teach literature, mm-hmm. we should teach the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's like this is what people believed. And it's almost like so removed that there's no point in actually learning from it other than to – almost like um, collect stamps yeah. saying like, I have this fact. Yeah.
0: Learning about learning versus a- learning from. Yes,
1: right. and that's the phrase that Wendell Berry uses. Learning about versus learning from. Um, and I can't, I can't rem- um, f- locate <laughs> the um, exact um, quote where he's saying um, the Bible should be read as literature. That's but, uh, page
0: 26. 26. Yeah, um, well, I thought that was a really interesting point here because oh, yes, yeah. we don't, I, I don't think Wendell Berry is just saying, you know, and no great books program that's worth its salt <laughs> really would be saying this, that if you just read a bunch of great books written by intelligent people, that the necessary end product of that is wisdom.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: it's just not true. There's there has there's so much that's presupposed here. And this is a it's a short e- essay. It points out the problems. It alludes to some solutions, but there's a lot to be worked out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that's really important, um, and I think it goes back to Wendell Berry's, you know, when he says that education in many ways is about the task of of understanding the, the proper names of things. In approaching books as well, it's n- we don't we don't make the books uh, it's, the the books are not something of our own making, right? There is an actual logos to the text that we should discover. And I think what Wendell Berry is talking about here is that the Bible, uh, is actually making certain claims that can't just be brushed, you know, swept under the rug, right? Mm -hmm. That if we are actually to understand this particular text, we have to take its claims seriously. Yeah. And if we don't, we're actually not understanding this book. Yeah. We're picking and choosing, you know, what what is palatable to us, and treating it like this kind of antiquated, you mm-hmm. know, historical A relic. relic. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right,
1: um, and that's yeah, right. That uh, you pointed out where that quote comes from, and he said um, this judge said that that he suggest he suggested the Bible might be taught as Shakespeare is taught. Uh, which is almost, it's a slight against the Bible and Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, everyone's offended. <laughs> right. Um, and, but the idea is that, like, it's almost like he's admitting that, like, we can't learn from these things. Uh, and whenever you're reading a great book, um, this is a term that Alisa uses um, often and that I have picked up and I like, is to approach the, approach the text naively, um, saying, like, th- assuming that there is truth in here to be garnered, and to, to learn from mm-hmm. and how can i learn from it
0: that's my own um, personal jargon that uh, i'll allow you to to participate okay. in <laughs> is, it, <yeah. laughs>
1: is that your specialized yes jargon? exactly A i feel very you? safe <laughs> when i use that word <laughs> <laughs> naive <laughs> that's right um but i think that um and this is actually now going to matt's jargon <laughs> and this is actually more this is actually more we're
0: undoing ourselves by yeah. the second this is more vivaky, but Matt uses it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, no, that you've you've um, highlighted his um, terminology um, and I think it's very useful the hermeneutic of suspicion versus the her- hermeneutic of beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are used to approaching um, things and in, in our particular example here texts under this idea of uh, suspicion. was this factually true? Mm-hmm. Um, oh it wasn't and so you start disregarding huge chunks of value mm-hmm. um, from texts. Because they're not meeting a certain criteria of your own, um, arbitrary, um, system. You know, it's like,
2: like, okay. You're trying to look under the hood and be like, what's really under here? And yeah, Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, yeah, Yeah.
3: even more pernicious Mm -hmm. than that. It's more of what Matt said. It's, it's, uh, Freud's unveiling of everything as Mm -hmm. sexual. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, Nietzsche's unveiling of everything as power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Marx's Mm -hmm. unveiling that everything is class dynamics and, and struggle that, That's what universities seem to be interested in now. Mm -hmm. Is like what what what's What's the background of yeah? yeah, Like what 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 was the author trying to get? Like how does he diminish the role of women? Yeah, Mm -hmm. how does he show people of color in a bad light? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, um, I I I like uh, what he says in his article about um, uh, people treat these texts like they're etymologists yes yeah yeah um, like they're people who study uh behavior and social of, sciences yeah, they, yeah. the students of behavior of a species of which they do not belong mm, in yep. his history and fate they they have no part right yeah that's a good um, way to put it sarah has asked me like three times if if our children ask what's the like purpose of studying history like <laughs> well, like what would you say to them <laughs> and I, I, I borrowed this from Jung because Jung's idea was like you know history is human history so the people that did these things, good or ill, are you in you mm-hmm. you ha- you share this human nature, so you are involved in their history, so the yep. reason why you study these texts is is not because of what they he he says this what they believed then, what they mm-hmm. believed back then, mm-hmm. but that they are in you, yeah, and they're not a separate species, exactly. so uh, I think this hermeneutic suspicion really destroys any sort of continuity mm-hmm. yep with them those are ants. Yeah, yeah totally.
0: <laughs> it does show though. Even in those kind of, you know, those psychological theories that you you laid out there, or social theories, that something does presuppose our approach to a text, some kind of philosophy about life, right? Not an ideology, which is to say, you know, a kind of perfectly mapped out system or secret code Mm -hmm. (laughs) to human behavior, right? But but certain principles, right? And and so that. You know, I see what you pointed out there, uh, father, in terms of, you know, determining the objectivity of certain literary text or something. You know, I see that as, in part, influenced by uh, scientism and mm-hmm. positivism, mm-hmm. that because we've placed that in for so long as the highest science, uh, the the one that has the most truth in it, right? Then we approach all the other sciences in that in that way, yeah. right? Looking. But you know, but there are different kinds of knowledges, knowledge, knowledge yeah. right mm-hmm. and and so that's that's not going to satisfy us, and we end up doing a great disservice to something like the Bible that's yeah. not making scientific claims yep. uh, in all of its books, right
1: right and that's um, yeah, it's just such a it's a removal from like that quote that you um uh alluded to earlier Lee. uh it's it's in removing yourself from the text to where you're just approaching it and saying like that's what they taught. You're removing yourself from humanity, uh, and and you become less than really what you're what you're called to be. And any, um, I think T. S. Eliot, um, he has an essay on what makes a classic, um, and part of it is the um, uh, endurance in history, mm. and um, the more time a text has to kind of um, settle uh, with um, society, and the more that we're going back to it, despite how many years it's um, been out. Um, kind of shows that there's something of value there that speaks universally to the human nature. To human nature, um, uh, that's um, essentially that. That's I don't know where I was going with that, but that, that's essentially. We have to get back um, to that. We, yeah. yeah, like Th- um, that's approaching how detached that you way.
0: are from a certain. <laughs> yes. agenda. you know, you're like we really don't know where this idea will go. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. of well, no well, yeah.
3: ideology. <laughs>
0: I have no
1: um, conclusions. but so. I, I love his. This is this <laughs> no conclusion. He put yeah, exactly. Up to you. You decide. We're, we're <laughs> just okay.
3: just thoughts, uh, no conclusions.
1: He he um puts it really succinctly, succinctly in um encapsulating the modern mantra. He says, "We will study, record, analyze, criticize, and appreciate, but we will not believe. We will not, in the full sense, know." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just. It's like, what's the point then, of studying Dante or Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. If you're just going to say this is what they believed in Italy and Florence, you know in the um, like the eleven, 1200s, so what? <laughs> right. Like, and that's where the like this is where um, uh, the value of education in general is really coming under fire. It's like people are asking now more than ever, what does it matter? Um, and not just literature or humanities, but education in general. Um, like a lot of schools are in danger of just being obsolete completely because this is the way that they approach education in general is like, just again, it's like stamp collecting. Like how many facts do you know? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't actually penetrate them. It doesn't shape them into anything. Um, So sad, sad state of affairs.
2: (laughs) 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 So, yeah, this is all kind of reminding me of the, you know, the conversations we've had on this podcast about um, that kind of flight from women, flight from the feminine um, and these, the the feminine virtues like faith and intuition, um, perception as beauty as of receiving mm-hmm. um, instead of this kind of piercing and so like to you know Wendell Berry saying that they will not fully know um, it is this it is interesting how biblical the biblical usage of that word knowing mm, is also yeah. used in that the sexual union sense of like you're not pulling apart Adam is not studying Eve for her biological makeup, like, there's a different type of knowledge that this kind of union without Mm -hmm. splitting apart um, that we're losing in trying to pick, like, separate everything into individual camps. Um, Yeah, it it seems like calling this the loss of the university, I feel like this, just kind of, it, it applies to more than just the university, like I've I've said before, but it's like, if you lose this, you lose culture like you lose everything because like how can society if these claims are true that like man is more than just their job then losing that notion you lose the religious sense you lose communities you're like everything starts to fall apart so it's not just like oh how do we like teach kids good stuff again it's like how do we preserve humanity (laughs) it's like it really is that Mm
3: -hmm.
2: yep yeah
3: i I know the conservative critique now is that for a while, this you know uh, whatever you want to say, Marxist or socialist in school, these professors, it uh, was like, well, it's just kids having fun, like right? mm-hmm. you know, like they'll, they'll, you know, they go to the university and they learn about all kinds of crazy stuff, and then you know, then they'll go out into the workforce and they'll workforce and they'll work for and they'll, uh, they'll learn how the real world it is, and right, and it's like, well, actually, you know, as we talked about already, you're formed in a certain intellectual environment, informed. Mm-hmm in a certain intellectual way, and then you go and think that way. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. The and world. then they create <laughs> the workforce. It's right. Like, that's what you're seeing now. It's like they don't go to a world that doesn't – like they've extended their their isolated knowledge and then just kind of spread that across the outside world. Yeah. And now that right. just continues on. It's not like they get hit with reality because they just created themselves. Right.
1: That's what – yeah, he says something like um, along the lines of <coughs> no – like if there's no integration in school, then there's no integration in the world. Mm. Uh You know, if you're going to approach education in this way, um, your world, your life will be isolated as well. Uh, And, you know, kind of going off what you were saying, your job is just going to be remaining your job and you have no real connection to that with your family and meaning. And then I think that there's that could be part of the meaning crisis that, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Jordan Peterson and all the intellectual dark webbers, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, this idea of uh, this recognition that we're in a meaning crisis, I think, is in part to a loss of integration. Um, with all the parts of our lives, mm-hmm. um, and seeing how they relate to something that's holistic. Mm-hmm. so
0: And that's, did you talk about maybe, I feel like I remember you, you mentioning this, Charlotte Mason's kind of uh, way of dividing the task of education, those three categories? Have you talked about that before? Uh, maybe not in the pod. Okay. Well, she, this is in her, that series, the philosophy of education mm-hmm. series that she has, but uh, she basically says that you know the, t- the entire task of education can be divided in three primary categories into three primary categories, and that is uh, a discipline of habits, the presentation of living ideas, and that education is an atmosphere. And then she says atmosphere takes up nine tenths of the task, more mm-hmm. than one third. It's not mm-hmm. an even division. Mm-hmm. And so and, and the way she words that is really important, right? The, the, the presentation of living ideas. these are not dead ideas, right? These are ideas that we are engaging mm. with in a living way. Uh, but that's one reason why I'm not uh, not a proponent of online education mm. <laughs> because that is actually only tackling the presentation of ideas. Uh, maybe even if they're presented well, maybe even if you're watching, you know, I'm, I'm all for watching podcasts, <laughs> you know, and uh, YouTube videos, whatever, you know, that subscribe, that, like, that. yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but in terms of the, the kind of university experience, I think is extremely unique, uh, for you know, this kind of Bill Dunsgram you know, moment of, of every person's life, this mm-hmm. coming of age, mm-hmm. um, is to actually identify yourself, this, dis, this discipline of habits, um, to, to work that out for yourself, and then to be uh, part of a learning community. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways, that's the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that we really do emphasize in the Honors College at Belmont Abbey, uh, that so much of what really takes place in the student's soul uh, is outside the classroom. Right It's the kind of conversations that spill over from the classroom conversations, those ideas that yeah. keep students up at night after they've put down the book. Uh, and all of that is really important uh, to foster, right? The teacher's role in many ways um, is is a midwife, right? I mean, we're we are simply kind of uh, tap, tapping into something that's already there and trying to encourage and facilitate it. Uh, but by no means do we do we put learning in the soul. Right. Mm-hmm. If we were to identify the location of learning, mm-hmm. uh, it's in the student's soul. It's not in the words I'm saying. It's not in my my mouth, <laughs> my own mm-hmm. brain. Learning happens in the student's soul, and so it's when the student is ready. That's yep. when the teacher shows up, um, and that's only part of it, right? So the student. I mean, that's why you can go to a, a great liberal arts college and have such a different experience from another student. Mm-hmm. Because why? Because not because you've taken different classes but because you haven't actually engaged in the atmosphere. Yeah. You you haven't actually uh, established for yourself a discipline of habits. Right, that, yeah. Right, so... Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, I feel like, I mean, from my own experience, I went to a state school, got um, a science degree, and then anything I know other than that has been on my own mm-hmm. endeavors. Um, but I feel like it is very analogous to uh, kind of like entering into a business versus being an entrepreneur in that you can be entrepreneurial in your education, but you're still going to have to set up the same structure as a job where there's, there's hierarchy, there's rules, there's, there's discipline, there's a way of life, there's an atmosphere in order for it to work. Um, and so it's like the, the idea, it's like, I don't need university. I can just be a free thinker. It's like saying, I don't need, a a regular job, I can be an entrepreneur. It's like, you're going to find out really quick that even as a free entrepreneur, you're still going to have to initiate these mentorships, um, the discipline to continue, right. like all the of the parameters has to, of a yeah, job. And it's, and it's exponentially is, yeah. harder because now you have to impose it on yourself. Right. So instead of participating in a system that's already established, that's the whole point of it, it's enter into, in, into this pattern that we have a discipline for you so that you can create an atmosphere. That's already there. It's like, you're going to have to do that whether you do it on your own or within exactly. a university. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. right. And right. even for yourself, I mean, in terms of your own kind of, uh, kind of personal, I don't know, journey of education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <We're all on laughs> uh, beautiful. Journey. We're all on a journey. Uh, That you have sought out conversation with us. Oh, for sure. With Kirsten. Yeah. You know, uh, know, the fact that you have children that you now have to worry about in terms of their own education. So there are these sort of social structures around you that have facilitated that learning.
2: Even though if I didn't go to a liberal arts school, I would not say I educated myself. Like, I've put myself in front of people like, please tell me stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like it's I'm still like. A student to somebody else right. whether that's in-person sure. dialogue or or what have you but it's like yeah. yeah that that has to still be there regardless and
1: that's i yeah. think the revival of education in our current society is um that uh these programs need to be bold in saying we hold like you know this uh, we hold education not almost like um like in a prideful way mm-hmm. but saying that like we can educate you passing on the knowledge that's been passed down to us uh you know the the great books have been it's a canon that's been passed down for centuries uh and it's really the educator's job to notice the pattern in all these things and then pass that down Mm -hmm. and um i think when when schools can be bold enough in saying that that's what they have and that's what they can give that's where we're going to see a revival in the university um but right now, it's, it's, everyone is very timid to say that, well, is there even truth? Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you can get money if you like, you know, you can get a good job if you study here. Um, that timidness, um, I think, is just going to lead to the destruction of um, education. And it's, and it. it's
0: the, the kind of extreme polarization, right? It's on the one hand timid, this kind of relativistic ambiguity yeah. about what on earth we're doing here. Uh, or the extreme elitism where, you know, if you're going to learn anything, yeah, right, you true. know, you better regurgitate what we're telling you. Yeah. And so there's got to be this. I think, as you said it right, that they are mediators of something larger than themselves. Yeah. And that is the truth of things. Right. right. So. Yep.
2: Yeah. I think also that like this is seem- this seems like it's accelerating in terms of its public awareness just because of everything happening politically. but it does bother me a little when this gets like quickly tacked on as like, Oh yeah, this is like all about that gender stuff. It's like, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of way yeah. deeper than this. Yes. Like this is 2009. Written, right. You know, like, and like, this is probably like, Hey, by the way, this has been a long time coming. Um, yeah. and so this is not just the political conversation going on around the gender thing. It, that's a symptom of a deeper problem of understanding the human person, understanding the education. Like that's just showing up there because that's how the cookie crumbles in this day and age. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I I think that the emphasis that this is way deeper um, is going to be kind of stumbled on as as the political stuff gets heated more and more heated. It's going to be like, well, okay, it seems inevitable that an ideology of some sort is put down on your kids. So, what ideology do we want our kids to have? And like, it, it's going to stumble into like a religious question of like, that is so well, true. Well, we do need yeah. something like humanities. We probably do want them to be educated under a Christian context. Like yeah. so, and then that's going to be a revival of. All of this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The the option of bad philosophy versus no philosophy yeah. is not a luxury we can oh, actually sure. choose yep. <laughs> yep. right now. Yep. Uh it's it's either bad philosophy or good philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like they your your our children will be uh, indoctrinated. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, if, yep. if we do not actually mm-hmm. give them the the deposit right. of, of truth and faith. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that is something to take into consideration now. I mean, there is, there is, you know, the Benedict option, but <laughs> what that even means, I, I don't know. Right. Uh, and, and even, even the Benedictines were very educated, <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? right. Um, so yeah, there, there will be a formation taking place whether we like yeah. it or not.
2: That's a good place to stop. Um, let's go to the bonus. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, okay. <laughs> um You can go to basicallyrelated.com to hear that conversation. Uh, We do weekly bonus episodes. Uh, Alisa, thank you for joining us.
0: Pleasure to be here.
2: And we'll see you all next week.